0: Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about books and literature of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, the literature book review editor at Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. My regular co-host, Christina Rossetti, is taking today off, but I'm thrilled to be joined by two amazing authors and scholars, Rosalind Eves and Lisa torcaso Downey. Rosalind teaches English at Southern Utah University and writes young adult novels in her spare time. She earned a PhD in English from Penn State in 2008, where she wrote about women's spatial rhetorics in the 19th century American West, focusing on the rhetorics of four very different women of the West, including Eliza R. Snow. She has written a young adult historical fantasy trilogy set in 1848 Austria-Hungary, starting with Blood Rose Rebellion, which won a Whitney Award for best YA fantasy. Her newest novel, Beyond the Map Stars, is a YA historical set in Utah, Wyoming, and Colorado around the time of the 1878 solar eclipse and features a 16-year-old Mormon protagonist. Rosalind, welcome. Thank you. glad to be here. Lisa Torcaso-Downing has served as fiction editor for Sunstone Magazine and Iriantum. She has published three novels for middle-grade readers. Her short stories and essays have appeared in multiple publications, and recently she has been active in writing about issues of feminism and gender in Mormon society, which you can read about on her blog, Life Outside the Book of Mormon Belt. Lisa, welcome.
1: Hello. Thank you.
0: Outside the Mormon, Book of Mormon Belt. So where are you located? Uh, Texas. And Rosalyn, where are you?
2: Uh, I'm in Cedar City. Utah.
0: Okay, good. Well, let's start off. tell us about the novel and what inspired you to write it.
2: Yeah, so there were a couple of things that inspired me to write it. One was that I'd been thinking for a little while what kind of book I could write that was uniquely mine, something that I was felt uniquely qualified to write. because um, I'd really been thinking like lots of people have stories that are very similar to mine growing up. What are things that I can tap into? Um, that might be a little bit different. And I was listening to an NPR podcast with David Barron, who wrote the American Eclipse about the 1878 eclipse. And I was fascinated by the story that he was telling. But I also was thinking, you know, all of these influential scientists came west for the eclipse. And I thought, what did that look like for people who were already in the West? Did that change their approach to things? And I started thinking, what would it have been like to have been, you know, a young woman living in Those times, who wanted to be part of that, you know, and I liked astronomy especially because I wanted something that showed a degree of ambition but didn't have a clear practical application, right? If a lot of LDS women went back east to study to be a medical doctor, and you can see an immediate application for that in the community, but what do you do if you want to be an astronomer? There's not an obvious use for that kind of gift outside of the academy, so that's kind of where I started. And then I was trying to decide where I wanted to set it. And obviously there are lots of small towns in Utah in the 1870s. I actually went to my family history and I found my great-great-grandmother who was 18 in 1878. And I thought, okay, that works. So I borrowed her name and I borrowed a lot of her family situation. So there are a few things in the novel that come directly out of my family history. But obviously the thing about her wanting to be an astronomer and going to see the eclipse was entirely fabricated. So Beyond the Map Stars is about a young woman named Elizabeth Bertelson, and she's 17 in the novel um, who lives in Monroe, Utah, and wants to be an astronomer. And she, her mother was a second wife, and she thinks that Elizabeth doesn't show enough attention to important things, that she's too flighty. And so she's trying to push her into um, a marriage as a second wife, uh, and Elizabeth doesn't want any of that. She wants to be an astronomer but she doesn't know how to get what she wants because she doesn't have, nobody has ever mapped that path out for her. She doesn't know anybody that wants to do anything like what she's dreaming of. Um, She gets a chance to go east to help her half-sister with childbirth and along the way, she starts meeting some of these astronomers and scientists. She runs into Thomas Edison, who was in Wyoming for the eclipse. And anyway, I don't want to spoil too much of the ending, but that gets her started on her journey. And then of course, there's a question of, Will she be able to be involved with this eclipse and with all these scientists who come out to see the eclipse?
0: Before we go any farther, let me just say, I love this novel. I thought this was a great story. And I just loved all the things that you did with bringing these, these various historical characters and with these, these characters that I grew to love. And then seeing them, how they interacted with Jane Manning James was, It was a great little cameo that she has. The romance, I was totally sold on. It's not a major part of the story, but still... I was very much sold on it. And I thought the way that you brought in these issues of balancing faith and science and balancing education and career with a family Mm -hmm. that Elizabeth's dealing with and that certainly we deal with today, I just thought was was great. So thank you so much for writing it.
2: Yeah, thank
1: you. May I ask a question? Yes, please do. You are writing this book for a national audience. There aren't a whole lot of books that have succeeded in writing LDS protagonists for a national audience. And so I'm
2: curious how you approached um, building that bridge. So that really was kind of tricky thinking about both writing for a young adult audience and writing for a national audience. There's lots of models of Mm -hmm. people writing about LDS protagonists for an LDS audience. A couple of things that I did, I tried reading a lot of religious books targeted to different audiences not just about the LDS religion but looking at sort of the commonalities of how our writers writing about religion in general. Um, I really recommend Daniel Mayeri's, um Everything Sad is Untrue which is a phenomenal look at both um, the Muslim background that his parents came from and then their conversion to Christianity which is a little bit of a side note but that was one of the things that I did. But I also feel like I got really lucky that I already had an established relationship with my editor, who I'd worked with on three books. And so she said, We're interested in an option book. Do you have a proposal? And I submitted, my agent and I submitted a few different ideas. And this is the one that I wanted to write, but I thought, There's no way that my editor is going to pick up this story about a 19th century Mormon girl. Um, And then that's the one that she picked up and so that was one of those moments where it really felt like God kind of had a hand in that saying this is the book that you have to write which of course was also terrifying because it meant I have to dig into the things that make my faith real to me I have to wrestle with some of the things that I wrestle with religious books that have a pat answer I think there's a market for those but I don't think that's the national market I think religion is more relatable to people. When they do see some kind of struggle, it gives them a way in. So I guess I tried to think about like both what makes Mormonism very specific and what makes it feel universal. And I talked to lots of my friends, like, what is it that makes your faith important to you? Because I wanted to, I wanted to try and reflect that in the story. And I was really lucky that, um, you know, my editor is Jewish and she's very interested in religion. And so she let me keep a lot of the religious elements like there are and blessings, you know, healing blessings in the book. And I wasn't sure when I wrote those that they were going to make it past the editing stages. And my editor let me keep a lot of that, which I was grateful for. I think you did an absolutely fantastic
1: job within the first 13 pages of uh, addressing the issues that a non-LDS reader might face. For instance, you had um, Elizabeth reading books and she comes across Mormon people and they're just ridiculous. But she but Elizabeth has this sort of playful attitude about it. You know, she's not offended by it. She understands it. And certainly some LDS or some non-LDS readers are gonna come with their own baggage, their own negative thoughts about Mormonism. And you just like said, Hey, you know what? That's okay. Right there in that in that simple little scene. And then your first instance of polygamy was Elizabeth talking about, about Aunt Eliza, who had passed, in such lovely, affectionate terms. And then a few pages later, we got the jealousy of the mother of the third wife. And that was done with so much human feeling and understanding. And it, it kind of left room for a non-LDS reader to kind of take a deep breath and think for herself, I could never do that. <laughs> Because we saw first you aligned us with polygamy in a way that was sweet and we could feel that you know like having an aunt that loved you and, and then you take us to this place where you know you give us the space to not be all in to not have to accept that. And I thought
2: that was just fantastic fantastic stuff. It was really important to me that the novel touch on that. Obviously this story isn't about polygamy, but it was a very big part of people's lives and and I don't honestly know what exactly the relationship was between Elizabeth's mother and the first wife but I assume it was cordial because nobody ever said anything but the story about his her father remarrying an older woman so like you can't even justify that you're doing it because you want children comes straight out of my family history like Elizabeth's mother had threatened to go to the courthouse in Richfield and ask for a divorce and I don't know what happened but clearly she didn't do that because she had a baby about or eight months later (laughs) yeah that would that would suggest they got along (laughs) (laughs) so i can't take as much credit for the second one but it was really important to me to show that it wasn't all bad and that it wasn't easy either no and you to have written
1: the novel and exclude polygamy would have been so glaring so i'm glad you didn't do that because you also are writing for lds readers And, oh, my goodness, if I could take this book and hand it to every 17-year-old LDS girl, I would. It was just wonderful and addressed the issues of today in a way that was open and loving and hopeful. That was just fantastic.
2: I mean, that was my aim. I think one of the best pieces of feedback was a friend of mine who read an early draft, and she said, I think this is the book I've been waiting for since I was a teenager. Um, Because I think it's important for people to see themselves in books and, and I was thinking yeah. specifically young LDS girls but I was thinking more because I was writing for a general audience I was thinking more of so many kids grow up in religious traditions that don't fit them very well as they grow up and they have to kind of figure out their own place whether they stay or whether they leave and to make their own path and that's kind of what I was writing towards.
1: Yeah um Potok, I'm, I'm a big fan of PoToc. Yeah. and I, I read an awful lot of um, his interviews where he spoke about how to uh, how to take you know a microcosm, a religious microcosm, and, and translate it for for the broader world. And he spoke often of a core to core conflict where somebody with their um, with a very singular view, a religious view. Um, has to come in conf- conflict with the secular world yeah. and this is exactly what elizabeth does. Yeah, and because of that, I I just think it was um, So universal it was It wasn't just a mormon girl who wants to see any eclipse. It was all of us in our struggles with our mothers our struggles with the ideologies and theologies that have been handed down to us by our parents. And whether you're LDS or not, you can see yourself in Elizabeth. Thank you. So, yeah. That's what I was trying
2: (laughs) for.
1: You got it. You nailed it.
0: Can you tell us about, there's a moment where Elizabeth uh, has kind of an epiphany looking at a women's exponent, one of the 19th century LDS journals, women's journal, and she reads a quote by a editor of the journal named mm-hmm. Lula Green Richards, which says, I urge readers to utterly repudiate the pernicious dogma that marriage and a practical life work are incompatible. Yeah. Could you tell us anything more about maybe the background of, of that author and you know, how common was that idea in, in the 1870s Mormon society?
2: I did a project earlier this summer where I was looking at some of the first years of the women's exponent and I'd read parts of it before um, for my dissertation research, and I went back to the exponent again this book because i wanted to get a feel for what the language was like i know these is my words is super popular but i also thought the language in that book is not really reflective of every frontier woman's experience right they're not all you know she's very uneducated at the beginning and she gets more polished as it goes through so i was reading some of those issues with the women's exponent because i wanted to get a sense for how are these women writing and how might they speak and how might someone. wants to appear educated talk if she's trying to imitate what she would see which would be the exponent and i don't know where i ran across lily green richards quote but she was the first uh, editor of the exponent she was brigham young's niece uh, which may have had part of her getting getting the job and i think she initially asked to have it as a calling um, and it ended up being a a full-time job for her for a while until she got married, and a couple of years after her marriage, she stepped down as the editor of The Exponent. But the thing that kind of surprised me going back through The Exponent is that there's a lot of very conventional 19th century Mormon stuff. There's the, your house is the most important thing, your house and your family, and it's on your head if your children stray, and a lot of that stuff. But there was also things like that, that a life's work is not incompatible with marriage, or there's a fantastic, wish I could remember the exact Issue that it's in, but it's one of the early issues where they talk about it. May not be that the woman's place is in the kitchen or in the home. It might be that her God-ordained place is in the laboratory or you know, the the library or or some other place. And so there there were both some very conventional stuff and some very radical ways of thinking about women's ways in the world. And I I wanted to showcase some of that. I thought it was important that Elizabeth get her final epiphany moment from, from women from her own faith. And yet, it strikes me
1: as a little sad that our young women are facing so many of those same issues today. Can I have a career? Should I get an education?
2: It's really quite tragic. Um, which is why this book is important for our girls. Yeah, I mean, that did strike me when I was strike me when I was writing it. That a lot of these issues are still very pertinent, and not just for LES girls either. I think there are a lot of young women that struggle with
1: that. Yes. I'm curious, though, since this is kind of an LDS-themed podcast, if you have received pushback
2: from more traditional LDS people who have read this. I haven't yet. I did have a roommate once that wasn't convinced about the depiction of the church in a former roommate that didn't like that, And actually, my parents, when I read them the first chapter, my mom said, this sounds like it was written by somebody who knows a lot about the church but doesn't believe in it. And I was like, "Oh!" I <laughs> really like the finished version, so it's possible that that first edition wasn't very polished. But I mean, I, I haven't yet. I I don't know if that's just because they haven't read it or because they haven't reached out to me to share it. You know what you what you just
1: said about your mom um, puts me in mind of uh, something that I've heard about apologists that they often. Uh, recreate the image of the church and make it sound more progressive than it is. And I, I can. I'm wondering if Beyond the Map Stars is a little bit apologetic
2: in that way. I mean, I think you could make a case of that I think it. I think it's idealistic is what I would say rather than apologetic. It tries to paint the best of the worlds that were there. I mean, I also acknowledge that while I tried to include a lot of diversity in the book, I think you could make a case that there were egalitarian people living in the West. It probably wasn't quite the way I depicted it there. But I also felt strongly that um, it's not my job as a white author to write about the pain of marginalized people as part of a historical novel. So I alluded to the fact that racism exists, but I didn't dwell on it. And I kind of did the same thing, I think, with the church. No, you've got enough of that, you know, the analysis of what pain
1: does to a person, how it motivates and stops them through Elizabeth. Yeah, So I think that's good. Luckily, I made the book open to this. <laughs> this is on page 210, right after Elizabeth has been at Allison Will's church meeting. And she's reflecting back on meeting Jane Manning James on the train. And she says, sitting beside Alice who is her friend. I'm embarrassed and I haven't thought about this much because it didn't affect me, meaning the bigotry that James, that which touches one of us should touch us all. I can't hold God accountable for the foolish things people do in his name, but maybe I can set a higher standard for people for myself. Mm-hmm. That encapsulates who Elizabeth is. Yeah. And one of the things that also struck me is how through her naivete, you were able to open all kinds of cans of worms with controversial subjects, and she's approaching them for the first time and thinking it through with that same pure heart and coming up with answers that people my age, a lot older than her, still haven't come up with.
2: It's Beautiful. That was also something that was important important for me to address is I did want to see her grappling with a lot of the inequality, but I wanted to do it in a way that felt natural and authentic to the story and the character. But yeah, I mean, I I am still today grappling with issues and these questions. As is the church? And American society in general, I think.
0: Well, let me mention this research you did on the Women's Exponent. You published an article in Iriantum, which just came out recently, called Making Themselves at Home, the Domestic Rhetorics of LDS Women, 1872 to 1875. That's so great that you can combine your research, you know, scholarship that you're doing at the university with your literary work.
2: I was really excited when that call for papers came out because it was so directly up my alley that I was like, I have to do something for this. You mentioned my dissertation earlier, but I, I wrote about Rhetorics of Space, which is thinking about the ways that space and place affect our rhetorical choices, affect the options that we have for persuasion, both in terms of like the physical configuration of a space and also the way we talk about a space. And so this idea of domestic rhetorics and how we talk about home and how the way we imagine that space affects how we interact in those spaces. It affects possibilities we see for ourselves. So it just, yeah, it felt like kind of a natural extension of writing the book. But of course, because this is with Knopf, the book was completely written. Like, I don't think I touched it since last November, December was probably the last time I edited anything on it. So the research that I did for the Ariadne piece was mostly newer research, but it did help that I had done a lot of research on Mormon women in the 1870s. That definitely helped.
0: What other kind of research did you do for the book?
2: Oh, all kinds. I mean, I read about different ethnic groups that were living in the American West. I did a lot of research on the eclipse. Cleveland Abbey was one of the men who was supposed to go up Pikes Peak. In fact, he's the one that got sick and had to go back down. And I love his story. He was so meticulous. And he, a couple years later, published a book for the government that was like a compilation of all these different views of the eclipse from people who had been there. So it was a really great repository of information. But he describes the eclipse. So he had mountain sickness, and he was halfway down the mountain. His boss said, you have to go down killing yourself. So this thing he'd been looking forward to for months, he had to go down the mountain. He lost his spectacles somewhere. And so here's this man who's essentially bedridden halfway down the mountain, trying to capture as much of the eclipse as he can, even though he can't really see everything that's going on, but because he was that dedicated to his job. But so, um, yeah, so some primary sources like that. I read quite a bit about Mariah Mitchell. My husband and I took our kids to Denver for a trip. And I kind of naively thought, oh, this will be easy to reach Den- research. Denver's only seven hours from where I live. We can drive out and see everything and get a feel for it. And it turns out that it's easier to research 1848 Budapest than 1878 Denver because most of the inner city in Budapest still looks the same as it did in the 1840s. A lot of those buildings are still standing. Um, if you go to downtown Denver, very little of it works the same. So I had this hand-drawn map that I, had to, I went to the Denver Public Library and looked at a bunch of maps. And so I had these hand-drawn maps, and I was trying to map them on the actual streets to figure out, like, what would have been there in the 70s and what wouldn't have been, and most of it wouldn't have been there in the 1870s. In fact, I think where the baseball stadium is now, as near as I can figure, is where the train station was.
0: The Denver, this mixed-race family, the two friends that she makes, mm-hmm. uh, was a fascinating story how much uh, this family was leading members of Denver society.
2: And that was based on a real historical person, Lancelot Ford, I think. Barney, Lancelot Ford, that's right. So Barney Ford was a wealthy businessman. I I ended up inventing a family though because he was a little bit younger than what I would have needed for someone to be a grandfather of these two kids. But yeah, but he was a very influential member and some of the people that they meet at, like at the party, for instance, were real
0: people. Well, as long as we're talking about your scholarship, could you tell us about a little bit about Eliza Snow and what you found in your study of her rhetoric?
2: Yeah, so I, mean, I was interested in rhetorics of space, and I was trying to think of different ways that women use spatial rhetoric. And so I ended up making an argument about Eliza R. Snow that focused a lot on this idea of constitutive rhetoric, that is, we create groups sometimes by the way we talk to the groups, like they become a group as we address them. Is kind of the idea behind this. And so, looking at the way that she talked to Mormon women, there's a lot of exor- exhortative rhetoric, like, we want you to be this kind of person. But there were some interesting ways that she also tied it to the landscape. Like, she would talk about the women of Utah, and they would talk about, you know, the na- narrative that everybody else was using. It wasn't unique to Eliza R. Snow of the desert redeemed. But so, like, in her speeches, when she talks about Utah, she has this whole narrative about how they came west, how they created this garden. Now they're tasked with becoming mothers in Zion, and this the conflation of Zion with Utah as a physical space was really interesting to me. Did you come away liking Eliza R. Snow more or less
1: than when you began?
2: Well, as a graduate student doing the research, I think I came away really liking her more, just because I saw her as a more fully fleshed individual. But I will admit that going back more recently and reading a little bit more about Eliza R. Snow, I a little bit more mixed. feelings. Like she can be very much of a Martinet is maybe not the right word, but she does seem like very, she's very strict about like you toe the line or I, I think I admire her a lot. I'm not sure that like is the right word. <laughs> Fair.
1: Okay. So as an LDS feminist and a novelist, do you think it was more important for you to capture
2: what is or what should be? Gosh. I mean, there was a little bit of of both. One of the things that was hard for me um, doing the research for this book was just realizing that in some ways women in the 1870s had more freedom in the church and autonomy than we do now. And I did want to show some of that. I wanted to show things that I think we don't talk about. We, we do talk more about women's blessings, but I'm, I know that in my ward, if I were to say, yeah, well, women do these blessings all the time, there's a lot of people that would not believe me that that was part of our history. Um, so it was important to me to show that. I didn't want to gloss over everything, but I also it was also important to me that I tell a story about someone who questions and who's fighting to figure out their place and who stays. Because I think we have a lot of stories about people who fight and question and leave. And so because I wanted her to stay, it also meant I couldn't dig too deep into the hard stuff because then readers would be like, why is she doing this? I don't know what is or what could be. I think, I think it's a little bit of both.
0: The blessing scene was beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so glad that you included that.
2: Yeah, oh, thank you. Yes. And
1: the other very Mormon feminist thing that I loved was
2: prayer to Heavenly Mother, that she was included. Yeah. And I mean, some of those are maybe a little anachronistic. I haven't found evidence that pioneer women were doing that, but mm-hmm. I think that's the challenge of historical fiction is that you want it to be true to the time period, but you're also writing to your contemporaries, which means that sometimes you have to, I don't know, you have to make the past accessible. And I, I probably could go as far with that and book as I could, but I was also trying to be conscious that I'm writing this to a national audience. And so I want to show that faith is important to her, but I don't want to make it a book about faith. No, and it wasn't. And the way you slip those
1: things in, because we cared about Elizabeth and because we saw her heart, those things don't take on more importance than they should. Yeah. It was just part of who Elizabeth is. So it's beautifully, beautifully crafted.
2: Thank you. Thank you. For that.
0: <laughs> How do you see yourself as similar or different from Elizabeth? Oh, that is a good question. You know, of
2: all the characters that I've written, Elizabeth probably is the most personal, just for a couple of reasons. I mean, I borrowed my great great grandmother's name and her family for this. And Samuel Willard is sort of loosely based on Samuel Willard Collings, who was my great great grandfather. Um, and I don't know what he would have been like, but I put some of my grandfather in his character. So his grandson, I think that was fair. So there are those those elements, and also I think, like Elizabeth, I tend to be sometimes more careful than I should be. Sometimes I think too much before acting. So I, th- I think those things are similar. I-, I do not have Elizabeth's passion for the stars. I have uh, an astronomy calling here that I ask lots of questions to <laughs> because I just don't know enough to believably convey that. But yeah, I do. I do feel a lot of resonance with Elizabeth and with with that feeling of I want something bigger with my life, but I'm not sure what this is. I feel like that was kind of the defining feeling of most of my teenage years.
0: So did you have that that struggle of do I want you know, higher education and a career? Or was that always just something that you were sure that you would do?
2: I was really lucky and I don't think I've realized how lucky I was. I, I've been realizing it increasingly in the last five or ten years. My dad is a statistics professor and my mom was also a professor at BYU. She has a master's degree. She finished her master's degree when I was a baby. Um, And she taught part or full time as far back as I can remember. So I grew up with a very devout mom who had a master's degree and taught at BYU full time. And my two best friends growing up as well, both of their moms finished PhDs when we were in high school. And I don't think I realized how unusual that was. But I grew up with women around me who had careers and interests outside of the home. And that just seemed normal to me. I mean, I think my dad was my biggest cheerleader when I said I wanted to go and get a PhD. So I didn't personally feel that, but I did see a lot of that in people around me. And I guess there were sometimes people that would ask questions like, why are you doing this? But I don't, honestly, I haven't gotten very much of that. And I don't know if that's just because I scare people or because I was (laughs) enough of a nerd. Like, we're just glad that she got married. We're not going to. But I will say I was fully prepared to not get married and to be a professor and to support myself. And, you know, I think that would have been a fulfilling life too.
0: Well, what's next for you in your writing?
2: I am actually currently working on edits for a historical young adult romance because I wanted to write something fun and escapist and I did and my agent said, what are you working on? And I sent it to him thinking, you're not going to want this because this is just fun and escapist and he did and it sold. And so I'm doing that next. As far as research, I am still trying to figure that out. I, um, I've i only been full-time faculty for a couple of years and before that I kind of was focusing on my books, and so now I'm trying to figure out how to balance being an author and a mother and a researcher. Sure. Um, but I really would like to do some like retards of space among LDS women because I think that's fascinating.
0: Which historical period is the novel that you're working on now?
2: Uh, it's Regency.
0: Okay, good. Now this is a books podcast, so I'm, I'd like to ask both both of you, what have you been reading recently? What books have you can you recommend?
2: Oh bring me
0: up my Kindle app right now so I can tell you. So Lisa, you recently read and reviewed the Bollywood Lovers Club by James Goldberg and Jancy Patterson. Uh, What did you think of that?
1: I enjoyed the book a lot. It was um, really a fresh take on, you know, boy meets girl when the boy is LDS and the girl is not. And it asked some hard questions and, and came to some interesting conclusions. So I, I enjoyed it, and I really think that
2: young adult readers would enjoy it as well. It would be challenging. It's a challenging book. I liked it a lot, too. And what I loved was how casual both characters, their faith was just a part of who they were. It was never made like a point of debate. Like, neither of them were questioning their faith. They had some questions for each other, but it was more born out of like curiosity and mutual interest than and respect. I just really loved how they did that.
1: And faith was an outgrowth
2: of their identity and their culture,
1: as opposed to being just a belief system. It was more tangible in their lives, in their daily lives. Without discussion, it just was.
0: What a great year. We've had so many wonderful LDS young adult and middle grade authors over the last few decades, but very rarely are there national novels that are about LDS characters and where where faith is a big part of it. And to have two such high quality novels come out in the same years is a real bounty. Rosalind, any other books recently that you read?
2: Well, because I'm working on a revision for a historical romance, I have been reading a lot of romance, and I don't know that that's quite quite the audience for it. But I am teaching a class this semester on diversity in YA fantasy, and we've read some really great books for that. We just finished Justina Ireland's Dread Nation, which kind of reimagines the post-Civil War Reconstruction era. If uh, What if, instead of the Civil War ending, what if it was just interrupted by a zombie outbreak? It's been really fun and fascinating, and we've had some great discussions in class about how you know zombies can sort of symbolize whatever you want in popular culture, and in this case, they really do seem to stand in for a lot of the evils of, evils of slavery and racism, so it's been fun to talk about. Okay, good, great.
1: I just finished The Four Winds. Kristen Hanna, a wonderful book set in the, uh, in the Depression era. Decibel. fantastic.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, both of you. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening to the Dialogue Book Report. This show is produced and edited by me with additional editing and music by Daniel Foster-Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. To hear more and find other great content like Blair Hodge's Firesides, interviews about religion and culture with brilliant people who will fan the flames of your curiosity, go to dialoguejournal.com. Rosalind, Lisa, thank you very much.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.
0: Beyond the Block, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, is a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Join Brother Jones and Brother Knox, a Black lifelong member and a queer convert theologian respectively, as they read the scriptures through the lenses of their identities and others in an effort to bring the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints closer and more in line with its theology, which centers Christ's justice and compassion. New episodes every Monday.
2: Dialogue Podcast Network.